Welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. We expose the existential threats to America. Is that Afghanistan and company? And we discuss the news of the day. It's the fall, so a little bit of football, too. Joining me today is Michael Rubin, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He is the man. He specializes in Iran, Turkey, and the broader Middle East expert on Afghanistan. A few things I want to discuss first with my friend Claude. Uh, I think you ought to tell everybody where you are. Oh, yeah. So I am in Flushing Meadows, New York, um, and covering the U.S. Open uh, tennis tournament for U.S. Open uh, radio, the exclusive radio uh, coverage of uh, the U.S. Open. Are you doing play-by-play, serve-by-serve? No, I'm not, but I am helping those who are be heard what are you all doing? over Technical? the world. Yeah, all the tech, sport. yeah, all the tech stuff, all the you know the stuff that I used to do for us on the radio. I'm doing here for these guys. All right, we got an uh, important interview with Michael Rubin coming up. Nobody knows more about Afghanistan politics, um, the history, uh, what it portends. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, just reviewing the weekend, we got to talk about football a little bit, folks. of course. Excuse me. Uh, what struck you this weekend? Uh, what struck me this weekend? A couple things. Number one, or were Alabama, you watching tennis? I was. I was watching both. So I think I sent you a picture of my little broadcast booth, and I had my tennis yeah. on the monitors, but I had a television right over to the side where I could uh-huh. watch a little bit of football. Number one, Alabama's Alabama. They've got a quarterback. I like them. Uh, their defense might be one of the best defenses that they've had there in years. Uh, so that's that's one thing. Number two. The Clemson-Georgia matchup was more of an um, indictment on how good Georgia is, not how bad Clemson is. or um, And they'll win the rest of their games because their schedule's basically nothing. They'll win the rest of the games. Um, and That's probably they'll still get into Will it. Patty Cakes, yeah. yeah Georgia's yeah. good, uh, but there were no offensive uh, touchdowns in that game. None, none, uh, none. Interception. But Georgia defense is tremendous, but their offense, uh, they won't beat Alabama, not with that offense. No. So they need uh, they need to think about that. And, and that is shaping up. Georgia's in the East, uh, in the SEC, and mm-hmm. Alabama's in the West. They are not scheduled to play each other. It could be an SEC championship game between those two. But right. your analysis of Alabama is exactly right. They graduated almost everybody, and they just bring in another group, mm-hmm. regroup, reload, and they look terrific. Bryce Young from uh, Modern Day High School in California. Uh, you know, that John Bosco rivalry with modern day, our friend Brian, you know, it's mm-hmm. the, they just keep producing these kids. And uh, JT Daniels, what's his name? Yep, JT Daniels, Georgia. He's California as well. So there you go. And, of course, the quarterback for Clemson, Uga Lalali, if mm-hmm. I'm saying it right, uh, is uh, from Bosco High School out there. Amazing. Yeah, that analysis is correct. Big Ten looked weak. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ohio State was uh, – you know, beat Minnesota, but they were pushed around for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pac-12 uh, looked terrible, uh, with one exception. Uh, Oregon, was, yeah. Oregon was pushed around mm-hmm. by Fresno State. They beat them. Uh, but UCLA looked good. I agree with that. They beat LSU. And so yeah. maybe there's some hope out there with the UCLA team. I think they ought to be in the top 10 when the coaches poll and the AP poll come out. The most interesting game, I thought, was actually last night. We're talking on Labor Day, and that was the Florida State-Notre Dame. Did you catch any of that? I did. I did. Uh, uh, Notre Dame, better team. Florida State showed a lot of heart. McKenzie Milton came back after two mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. Horrible leg injury. But that game was lost by the coach, the much-celebrated new coach of uh, Florida State, Mike Marvell. I don't know if you saw it, but fourth and two on their own 32 in the third quarter, and they go for it. Yeah. 
Yeah, they didn't get it. Notre Dame scores. It's crazy. And then he iced his kicker at the end in the overtime. Right. <laughs> he did the icing himself. So that was that was pathetic. But uh, I don't see a whole lot of strength, frankly, outside the SEC. The only team I saw that really showed me something outside of that was uh, UCLA out in the ten, out in the Pac-10. And, you know, Texas. Texas looked very good. Mm-hmm. Louisiana's not, not a pushover, but they looked very strong. Oklahoma uh, almost Oklahoma. lost to Tulane. Oklahoma almost lost to Tulane. Mm-hmm. Well, he, well right. here's the thing. Um, I, and I'm happy that teams aren't scheduling just, you know, teams that they can walk all over in the first week. But I think that, you know, there's I, I no preseason. I think they intended that. I think yeah. they intended that. If they didn't, go ahead. Well, and, 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 and so what we're seeing is, you know, I, I, offense takes a little bit longer to click, you know, than defense does uh, early in the year. And, you know, we'll see by week four what, you know, uh, Oklahoma's looking like and, and some of these other teams. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, I expected to see sloppy football at, 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 um, to start week one. They're not playing, you know, teams like Colgate right now. <laughs> I mean, they're yeah, scheduling yeah. teams that – that that yeah. have D one athletes right along yeah. with them, so you know, yeah. no disrespect to Colgate or anyone who went, you know, I'm not even sure if Colgate. I understand. Team, but. I Nebraska's playing Fordham. Fordham, mm-hmm. really? really? Well, Nebraska <laughs> lost to Illinois. Uh, they got to get their you know stuff together. I don't know. Go what back and play Fordham. My gosh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, I, let's move on to the. Oh wait, before uh, we move on, yo, did you sorry. see my University of Maryland Terrapins with the win over West Virginia this weekend? Yeah, that was a big win. Hmm. Yes, I like Mike Loxley coming from Alabama, and and to his younger brother, you know we have a That's chunk right. of a lower on our you know brother. playing quarterback. Yes, and so He's you need a quarterback, quarterback in in college. You need a quarterback. You do. Can we move on to news or? Yes. 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 I mean, I brought it up football, but you couldn't stop. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Start talking about tennis. We're not going to do tennis. A lot of there's a lot of no shows, aren't there? A lot of the big stars didn't come to. Um, yeah, well, so uh, yeah, as far as uh, Rafa Nadal, um, he, yeah. he didn't show, uh, you know, Federer, but I'm not sure how much uh, tennis Federer is going to play, and, and of course Serena didn't um, show as well. But no, I mean, yeah, the big names now. Uh, uh, Osaka uh, was in the tournament, lost in the second round to Layla Fernandez, who's a bright young star. Um, Sitsa Pass was in as well, but he lost to uh, another bright young star, 18 year old Carlos Alcaraz. And, uh, okay, that's enough of that. I feel, yeah, I was gonna say, I feel like I'm boring you. With this, so yeah, that's yeah, stop. yeah. But yeah, no, there's yeah. some good storylines to the U.S. Open. People should yeah, watch. Yeah, you can tell me about the National Sewing Championship too. So. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, let's let's talk. I, you know, the thing that struck me this morning, um, well, I, you know, watching the news over the weekend, it's clear that a lot of the networks want to forget Afghanistan and move on uh, to talk about the Texas abortion law or. Mm-hmm. something else but the thing the newsy thing that struck me uh is what 31 states are cl- closing their schools so i have that right i think that's right yeah so i don't think it's all the schools in all of those states but i think it's something along those the uh, what i saw uh, from the hill was that there's about a thousand schools that stretch okay. across 31 states that are okay. that would be close yeah mm-hmm. that's a shame that's a real shame again learning losses uh was deep and profound in the covid year and here we go again uh, for thousands of schools and their students. I, I just, students don't transmit it. They don't get it. They don't transmit it. They're very little danger. If your adults get vaccinated, they don't get vaccinated. Have them teach at a distance. Should have the schools open. Should have the schools open. 
Uh, unemployment benefits from the government, that uh, thing that kept the job market uh, uh, low, uh, uh, labor increases low. That labor report was I think, 235,000 new jobs uh, created or, yeah, uh, because uh, people aren't going to work. Uh, now, September, I think uh, the bell tolls, I think that ends it for a lot of people. I have that right. So we'll see. We'll see if people go back to work. Uh, it is a lot of people haven't developed the habit of not uh, hope. A lot of people have not developed the habit of not going to work and, you know, thinking this is a great way to live. Work, a great source of, uh, of joy and pleasure, um, better than non-work. Um, and isn't a source of joy and pleasure for all people. I know that. I've had some backbreaking jobs, garbage man, moving man, stuff like that. Uh, have you been into the city? I have not. I plan on going in on Thursday. I don't. I don't even. Ha- I don't have a day off until Thursday. Well, first but I plan you tell, on first. You tell me like you work and you're complaining about not. Having well, no, a day. I'm, not, I'm not complaining about not having a day okay, off. Okay. I just haven't been in the city yet because I don't have a day off. <laughs> you got your family up there with you? Uh they're coming later this week. Coming later this week. Let yeah. me let it give, give us a report from the city. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the uh, 20th anniversary here uh, of 9/11. Look what's the same in Afghanistan, Taliban, Al-Qaeda. And we will talk to Michael Rubin about that. Really quite quite something. And um, Americans going to get out? They're being held for ransom. What's going on? Uh, we will talk to Michael about that. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Michael Rubin here. It's been a while. Tell me about your family. The kids are now nine and six. The, the girl is great. The boy is turning into a little math whiz. I mean, he's six years old doing negatives, square roots. Um, we're oh trying to gosh. figure out multiplication division in his head. We're trying to figure out what to do with him um, because, I mean, the public schools don't right. support that sort of thing. How far ahead of him can you stay? Not that far. I mean, <laughs> the embarrassing thing is, um, you know, his, he, he just shouts out his sister's homework answers, sisters in oh third grade, gosh. First, fourth grade. Oh they're, they're, they're fun. And I mean, all throughout the pandemic, our, our main goal was to um, make sure that they knew as little as possible about um, pandemic emergency life. So they had play dates throughout. They, I mean, we, we were normally precautious, not Good. Bethesda crazy. And so, I mean, I see some of their friends who didn't have play dates for months on end and our kids had right. play dates a couple times a week and actually turned out kind of normal throughout it all. Yeah. Good for you. Good for you. Well, yeah. a lot of interesting uh, discoveries by parents during this COVID era. I'll tell you about schools and what's being taught and what's not being taught and a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, all I can say is, I mean, I live in Montgomery County, Maryland and the school system here is in free fall. Yeah. And you know, and it's supposed to be one of the great ones and it was, uh, it had its golden moments. Uh, that's why everyone moved here. And, and that's um, right. I mean, people are actively fleeing in this. I mean, to me, it's just astounding that they thought that people might go to private school for a year and then come back as if parents are going to be willingly disrupting their kids' lives like that. And so now their enrollment's down five plus percent and mm-hmm. they don't know what. To, I mean, I just wish the state would stop funding, giving them emergency funding. Otherwise, they have no incentive to do things right. Oh, that's correct. That's correct. Uh, I, I discovered as Secretary of Education, uh, when people failed, we gave them more money. Yeah. It's not the way to go. Anyway, uh, so many questions here about uh, Afghanistan. Following your writing, 
what's the state of things do you think vis-a-vis our american citizens and our uh afghan allies uh, who are still stuck there will will they get out and if so how and on what terms i think that this is the largest hostage crisis the united states has ever faced and previously we looked at 52 american um, diplomats being held hostage in iran for 444 days at this point in time we have willingly left hundreds behind you can say a hundred if you believe the State Department figures, but there's no no basis to um, to that. The State Department appears to have taken that out of thin air. Now, the top, I mean, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, gets on Face the Nation and says the United States has leverage, and no one follows up with what that leverage is. But what the Taliban want is a share, if not the entirety, of the nine point four billion dollars in foreign reserves, which are physically held inside the United States. And you can't give just a little bit of money back. It's like being a little bit pregnant. I mean, if you give any of that money back to the Taliban, you're recognizing Taliban legitimacy. Now, here's my fear. The Taliban have always been engaged in a game of good cop, bad cop. And so what the Taliban are going to do is, I, I mean, on one hand, bargain over the Americans, which are held hostage. And we have most recently, some in Mazari Sharif, plane loads full of them, uh, and Afghans as well. But on the other hand, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw um, the Taliban sell some of the Americans or some of um, the Afghan SIVs to terrorist groups, um, playing bad cop, good cop, to al-Qaeda, to the Islamic State. After all, these aren't completely separate groups. These are brother and brother, cousin and cousin, and I wouldn't be surprised to see some spectacular um, execution, shows of violence in Very order good. to prod the Americans along. And, and the frustrating thing, it's human tragedy, is this was entirely of our own making. I mean, yeah. what, the, what the State Department doesn't want to say, what Biden doesn't want to say, is if we hadn't ordered the withdrawal when we did, then the Taliban not only wouldn't be in Kabul, they wouldn't be in any provincial capital inside mm-hmm. Afghanistan. Yeah, I was uh, talking to Ambassador Crocker, and then we talked to Colonel Bing West, and uh, this was my instinct. Uh, Crocker put it this way, um, in, uh, in, in 2010 or 2011, we had 100,000 troops, and the Taliban controlled no, no provincial capitals. Uh, three weeks ago, or four weeks ago, we had 2,500 troops, and the Taliban controlled no provincial capitals. That is, we were, you know, at a stalemate, but they didn't run the country. They weren't controlling the country. Uh, and then we pulled it out and lost it. Is that a fair statement? I, I think that is a fair statement. Um, look, when we go, look back over the last 20 years, I, I, I mean, where critics of our presence in Afghanistan, I think, are right, um, as well as critics of our presence in Iraq, is that nation building was a complete and utter disaster. Yeah. Yeah. And when we yeah. look at the billions of dollars that were spent, the cost in blood and treasure, much of that was due to this emphasis on nation building. But when it comes to what Joe Biden calls forever wars, really what Joe Biden calls forever wars is just traditional containment and deterrence. Over the last five years or so, fewer Americans, far fewer Americans were killed in Afghanistan than were killed in car accidents in Bethesda, Maryland, just to give you one example. And really, our presence in Afghanistan had become not much more expensive than our presence in Japan, South Korea, and Germany. Mm-hmm. We were in a containment mission, and what we're seeing now is the same thing we would see if we suddenly pulled our troops out of South Korea. 
And when you create a vacuum, it's not the forces of altruism which fill it. And unfortunately, Biden doesn't seem to understand that or care. I've been looking at my American history. I was looking at my own books, three volumes and other history. I I can't find an equivalent foreign policy wartime, I guess. I don't know. Maybe maybe not even wartime. Blunder. A greater one than than Biden's. Would you agree? I would agree. And this is something that, I mean, I'm trained as a historian. And when I was talking to my historian friends, we were trying to figure out and no one could think of any analogy. Bill, if you look at the analogies, which which the Biden administration often states, this is what frustrates me. They compare themselves to the Berlin airlift, but the Berlin airlift was all about holding back the forces of evil, not surrendering to them. You can look at Dunkirk as evacuation, which of course was British instead of American, but Dunkirk was about a strategic withdrawal in order to fight another day, not to surrender. And you can look at Saigon and Saigon in many ways was shameful. Perhaps that's the closest But when people went into a communist re-education camp, you would hope that they could still come out alive. What you see with the Taliban is simply hunting down their idea of re-education as a bullet in the back of the head. So all told, I don't think there is any analogy to what we're going through right now. That was a real blunder, maybe the worst. Well, let me put it this way. When people look at Joe Biden as the new Jimmy Carter, to me, that's an insult to Jimmy Carter. I'm no fan of Jimmy Carter, but if we look at Jimmy Carter... um, by today's standards, he was a positive hawk. First of all, he reversed himself on his promises to withdraw from the Korean Peninsula. Um, He sought a military effort to rescue the hostages in Iran. When the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, he imposed sanctions. I mean, Joe Biden makes um, Jimmy Carter look like Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Let's talk about the good Taliban, the bad Taliban. And I'm, I'm not sympathetic to what the administration is doing and their openness to deal with the Taliban. I also want to be fair here. I was a pretty strong supporter of of Donald Trump, but the recognition of the Taliban uh, by Trump and sending people to Doha or Qatar um, during his administration was the first big bad step. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. Um, And I had conversations. I wasn't as big of a supporter of Trump, uh, mostly on issues of style rather than substance. Right. Um, But. I had private conversations, arguments with people inside the administration about this. Look, what Donald Trump wanted to do was pivot to China. He saw that as as the major strategic objective of the United States. Let's just take that at face value. Where I would be then critical of Joe Biden is you're talking about a pivot to China. Show me where that pivot to China is. We've taken this strategic own goal. What have you gotten for it? But beyond that, You're right. I mean, I I think we have to fundamentally discuss what is meant by this good Taliban versus bad Taliban. And and certainly I can go into that if you want. Yeah. Let me let me make it more specific and then let let you go. The 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 reputation of the Taliban killers, you know, beheading people, so on. American people are getting an impression more of a kind of, you know, hostile, unfriendly group, but not murderous, not terrible. They're negotiating. They're not slaughtering people uh, at the moment. They're, you know, they had demonstrations and they're cutting them down. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a, I don't know if it's the media, the administration, some combination of effort to soften the Taliban right now. Is, is that going on? And is that justifiable? It is going on. It's not justifiable. Remember, during the Trump administration and continuing into the Biden administration, the U.S. embassy in Kabul wouldn't give visas to people like the Afghan national security advisor, to people like the Afghan vice president, because they were afraid that they might actually 
um, give a counterpoint, a counter argument to Congress. To me, this is all just an, a failure in the oversight of Congress not to question this sort of thing. But, you know, the Taliban really haven't changed. Special Envoy Zameh Khalilzad behind the scenes had said, yes, the Taliban had changed over the last 20 years. But whenever I or anyone else would say, well, where's the evidence to that? Crickets. No one was able to provide any. And certainly this is what I hear from people in neighboring states as well, that there wasn't any functional change. It wasn't realistic in the February 29th, 2020 peace agreement to say that the Taliban would disassociate themselves from group like groups like Al-Qaeda, because these aren't two political groups. This are within a family, brother and brother, cousin and cousin. They're not going to disassociate themselves from each other. But the real issue which we need to talk about is the Taliban isn't indigenous. And the fact of the matter is the Taliban is to Pakistan what Lebanese Hezbollah is to Iran. And we need to talk about the Pakistani command and control. And what we've really seen isn't an uprising of the Taliban. It's an invasion by a neighboring proxy force of Afghanistan. Yeah, I, I saw your piece about, uh, is it ISI? Is that what it is? That's the Pakistani Intelligence Service, yes. Right, and that's connected to the Taliban somehow? Well, they, um, the Taliban was a vigilante group back in 1994, and the, the ISI co-opted them. And basically, they had become uh, 100% a proxy of Pakistan. And whenever any Talib would try to be more Afghan nationalist, they would be whacked down, literally, by the Pakistanis. And right now? Right now, that's certainly the case. I mean, we've seen in the Panjshir Valley, where the last vestiges of the resistance are fighting the Taliban, we had Pakistani airstrikes yesterday. Against the people in the Panjshir Valley. Right. And of course, the Taliban doesn't have an air force. This was Pakistani fighter pilots on U.S.-made planes attacking the, the, um, the resistance. Two questions. The Pakistani ISI, or give me another group, is controlling the Taliban, A, and B, um, there's internal, are they creating internal conflict in the Taliban? I understand there's a fight for leadership. What's the Pakistan connection there? The short answer is, yes, the ISI is controlling the Taliban. When it comes to the factional divisions within the Taliban, there's some more Afghan nationalist folks, and then there's some that are under much more the direct command and control of the Pakistanis. The Pakistanis are trying to shut down anyone who would be independent of the Pakistanis. That's what we're seeing now. That's why the ISI chief, Faiz Hamid, rushed to Afghanistan. And that's why the Taliban have delayed their unveiling of their new government, because some of those, like the Haqqani Network, who the United States designates to be terrorists and uh, fist in glove with al-Qaeda, are objecting to the Taliban government as being even too moderate. Okay, this is very interesting. I've watched the news. I watch the news on Fox and CNN and MSNBC, you know, the cable. I watch the network sometimes, mostly cable, but but you no know, different different flavors. I've not heard any mention of Pakistan. Is, is, is am I right? I mean, you are right. And when I I mean when I was listening to Joe Biden's speech um, announcing the completion of the withdrawal, he seemed to blame everyone but Pakistan, and this is completely disingenuous. Mm -hmm. I mean, back during the George W. Bush administration, I remember that uh, Dick Armitage, the Deputy Secretary of State, Uh actually went to Islamabad and told them, you either get yourself into line or we're going to bomb you into the Stone Age. And of course, Pakistan complained through diplomatic channels, but for a time they got themselves in line. 
back in 2010, when I was doing my book research for Dancing with the Devil, A History of American Diplomacy with yeah. regimes and terrorist groups, I met with the former head of the ISI who announced openly that the Pakistanis were in charge of this, that they were simply trying to extract whatever money they could get from us logistically while creating a problem. They were like the firefighter who was moonlighting as an arsonist. Um, gotcha. Just this past February, the Pakistani interior minister got on television, on geo television in, um, in, in Pakistan. His name is Sheikh Rashid and admitted in Urdu, I don't think he understood that any Americans would be watching it, that the Pakistanis were controlling the Taliban. This isn't wow. some random conspiracy theory. This is front and center. And I mean, Joe Biden is either completely out of it, detached from reality, or the State Department's playing its typical game where they want to calibrate policy to wishful thinking rather than okay. to the reality of the situation. But do you think they know about Pakistan State Department? Do they know about it, CIA? Uh, absolutely, they do. This is something that State Department diplomats talk about openly. But just like you have an informal Saudi lobby within the State Department, an informal Turkey lobby within the State Department, you also have an informal uh, Pakistan lobby of people who have served there. And simply, it's a bureaucracy. Joe, um, Donald Trump was right when he talked about the swamp. It's a bureaucracy out of control. And not well, only Mike Pompeo, but also people like John Kerry will readily admit that they can only trust about 30 or 35 people within the State Department. The rest of the department has run amok. And that's why you constantly see, whether it's Hillary Clinton, whether it's John Kerry, whether it's Mike Pompeo, the secretaries of state surround themselves with a small insulated group simply because no one trusts the department. Let's go to the present situation as we're talking. And I'm, I know the audience is stunned by a couple of things you've said. Largest uh, hostage uh, crisis in uh, in history. Did, did I say that right? You did. Just, okay. And in American second, history, yeah. In American history. And second, uh, the role of Pakistan. But as we're talking, Michael, I believe I heard a report that there are Americans sitting in an airplane somewhere in Afghanistan. Go ahead. They're, si they're sitting in Mazar-e-Sharif, uh, which is the major city in northern Afghanistan. I was actually in Mazar when the Taliban attacked the city back in 1997. And all they need is permission to take off uh, the State Department is saying, well, we have no presence there. First of all, that belies everything the State Department was saying about over the horizon. But the Taliban evidently are just holding the planes on the ground, not letting people board because they want to extract concessions. When you're These ransoming, are Americans or, or as uh, special immigrant visa holders? Or it's both? a little bit of both. Okay. And by the way, Bill, can I just add one thing? I was, talking, I was talking to a former hostage uh, from the Iran hostage crisis and a former diplomat, and he noted that for 18 months, we had stopped um, interviewing SIVs, the special immigrant visa holders. And what he couldn't understand is the State Department goes to platforms like Zoom or like Microsoft Teams in order to hold meetings. Why couldn't our embassy in Kabul do visa interviews by these same platforms? You hand in your papers to one office at the, I mean, the guard at the wall, and then you get a ticket and you go into a room and you do your visa interview by Zoom. There's really no difference than doing it in person. And the fact of the matter is our State Department was just asleep at the switch. This is both under Trump and under Biden. There is no excuse for a week delay, let alone an 18 month delay in processing these people's visas. How can you tell uh, who's real and who's not, uh, either by a Zoom or an in-person interview when you know, 
people don't present any papers or maybe they're forged papers. What you do is you, you do what you would normally do is you present your papers. And then instead of having a face-to-face interview, you go to a terminal that's set up in the waiting room of the embassy. So it's one process and put it this way, you would have no, there would be no more chance of fraud there than there would be uh, if you were doing an in-person interview, you still do the same background checks. You're still handing in your papers to the Marine Security Guard or the Foreign Service National. And then you simply, instead of going to a window and doing that interview, you go to a computer terminal and the consular officials in the next room over. I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail here, but I understand that we'd have, we'd have a record or should have a record of a special immigrant visa granted by this country. But we're hearing reports that a lot of people in this 100,000 airlift were not SIV, but they were just Afghan citizens who were fled to the airport. You're uh, absolutely right there. And I were mean, they, they vetted? And how would you vet them if they don't have any papers, any, any papers at all? Well, this is absolutely the problem. Most of them did not have papers. A lot of them were um, there simply because of bribery or connections. You had special forces, not U.S. special forces, Afghan special forces manning the perimeters of the gates, and they were charging $5,000 a pop to let people in, according to some reporters. And the fact of the matter is, the people who were most deserving were left behind. The people who followed the instructions and um, were told to wait for transportation, to wait in a certain location, were left behind. You know what the Italians did, the Cabaneri did, is they had instructed certain people to dress in certain ways so they could identify them in the crowd. Unfortunately, we weren't even that creative. Well, it kind of sounds like our border. The people who are, you know, fill out their papers and are waiting in line don't get in. And the people who have nothing are just walking across in, from Texas. Well, let's talk about our border for a second, Bill. And the, I find it wholly ironic that the Biden administration is helping the Tajik, Tajikistan, which is on the northern border of Afghanistan, fortify and defend their border. And yet is refusing yeah. to do the same thing with Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Notice that. Let's go back to that uh, airport. Uh, where is it? Northern Mazari Sharif, which is right. the main city in northern Afghanistan near Uzbekistan. All right. So you got people waiting. Americans, probably, uh, as you said, a few mix. Americans and then a lot of SIVs. And they'll be waiting to board the planes until the Taliban makes a deal with us. Yes. Will we know about that deal? Uh, presumably, they're negotiating with the Biden administration. The deal, which I mean, will we know about the deal? The, if Obama is any president. We're going to try the the White House is going to try to keep this deal as secret as possible, but invariably it's going to come through. I mean, certainly the Taliban and the Pakistanis have every reason to crow triumphant to further America's humiliation. All right. And so we'll be paying for this. We will be paying for this if the Biden administration goes through with it. But ultimately, look, the Biden administration has the capacity to enter and secure that airport and get those planes out. And everyone is concentrated at the airport. Other people have done that before. The Israelis did that in 1976 with Entebbe. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Biden administration won't do it is more a matter of will than ability. I mean, we could, in other words, you're saying we could send a military force, go in there and get those people on the plane, protect them and get them out of there. Yeah, But we're absolutely. not going to do that. But we're not going to do that. I don't think Biden has it in him. So, the, so our people just sit there and rot and wait until we make a deal, uh, thousands or a million ahead, whatever it is. I mean, this isn't just a moral stain because of what we've promised the Afghans. I really don't think that the White House fully understands the ramifications of this and the reverberations of this are international. Anytime in the future, 
in which we want to partner with locals, no one is going to trust us for generations. Let's let's go back to Afghanistan. What happens in two weeks, a month, two months? Uh, what happens to the women? Uh, the, the report I heard most recent was that the women had it actually a street demonstration and were, were hit with uh, metal metal rods or, or pipes. Uh, are, are women going to be made to wear the burqa? They're going to shut down the schools. Will they be grabbed at 12 or 13 by some rough man they've never met, taken as wives? Um, are people going to be executed? What do you see in the next weeks, months, et cetera? The answer to each of those questions, Bill, is yes. You know that I went and back in March of 2000, I spent some time in the Taliban's Islamic Emirate. And this was three and a half years after they had uh, seized the government of Afghanistan. This are, of course, in the pre-9-11 days. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that struck me is a lot of people had said, uh, including women, I talked with women there, that they had no love for the Taliban. And women actually told me that if 5,000 women, this is back in uh, in March of 2000, stood in front of Mullah Omar's house, the founder of the Taliban in Kandahar, and all took off their burqas. The whole thing would collapse like a house of cards. And I asked them, well, why don't you do it? And their answer was, no one wants to be the 500 women who are executed while doing it. And the fact of the matter is, while we've had diplomats say, well, Afghanistan has changed. There's a whole new generation. They can't go back. What these diplomats don't understand is that groups like the Taliban operate through force of arms because they can't win hearts and minds. And people aren't willing to sacrifice themselves for that. So yes, the women of Afghanistan are screwed. We have completely betrayed them. The way to think about the Taliban is to imagine the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. I mean, for Tony Blinken to stand up there and wag his finger and say, you'll be a pariah state unless you support the women. I mean, the Taliban are laughing at him as they flog the women. And they are like the Khmer Rouge, and that's the way we've got to start imagining them. They don't care about being called a pariah. They're ideologues. Well, well, they hold off on committing these acts. You said yes to all of them, subjugation of women, uh, execution of people. While they are negotiating, are we going to see the, the nice, more friendly Taliban, the negotiating partner Taliban? And they'll wait on this more grisly stuff uh, until they get their money, or are they going to start willy-nilly? I think they're going to start willy-nilly. And part of the problem, Bill, is when we talk about the Taliban, we talk about them, our diplomats, as a unitary group. But there's really at least four different parts. There's the Quetashur and all that. And this is something which we alighted over. But And whenever the Haqqani Network, for example, would do something atrocious, the Taliban diplomats could say, oh, well, that's just a rogue faction. Well, now that they're in control, this good cop, bad cop routine is going to, I mean, have some really lethal consequences. Well, one of the things that seems to me an attempt to soften our attitudes as Americans towards the Taliban is uh, the argument about ISIS-K and that ISIS-K is fighting the Taliban so that, you know, and the Taliban is valiantly fighting back against these even more extreme people. Um, I think that attempt is going on. But in fact, these these are not... uh, uh, to- uh, organizations totally at odds, Taliban, ISIS-K, Al-Qaeda. Walk us through that, please. Okay. First of all, the logic there is um, me against my brother, me and my brother against my cousin, but somehow the White House has convinced itself that the Americans and the Taliban are brothers and that the natural common enemy is going to be the Islamic State of Khorasan, 
rather than vice versa, where ISIS-K, the Islamic State of Khorasan, is the brother of the Taliban and their mutual enemy is the United States. At the same time, again, we get into this problem of, um, well, are these simply two distinct groups or are these within a family, literally, brother and brother, father and son, cousin and cousin? And is it realistic in Afghanistan's tribal society to expect brother to turn against brother? Um, the other thing is if, I mean, I think the folks at Foundation for Defense of Democracies pointed this out, uh, the Long War Journal or Thomas Jocelyn sure, sure. Um, had basically said, when you look at that supposed Islamic State um, Khorasan suicide bombing, I say supposed because we're just accepting the word that it was Islamic State Khorasan rather than Taliban that killed our 13 heroes, our 13 Marines um, at, at the Kabul airport. Well, who was providing security? I mean, the Taliban had said that they were secure in that area. So those ISIS-K folks had gone through Taliban security. security. I mean, did, was the Taliban either incompetent or did they simply wave them through knowing what would happen? And that's something that we haven't fully addressed. Give us a glimpse of uh, Afghanistan and us in, the, in a month, two months, three months. Well, we don't fully know where the um, how far these ripples of this disaster are going to extend. I mean, I worry about um, China and Taiwan, for example. We've emboldened China. Um, our allies don't believe that we're going to stand up for them. Um, I worry about NATO. And Donald, um, Donald Rumsfeld used to talk during the time of the, um, the Iraq war about how we can't differentiate between old Europe and new Europe. But the Russians are going to um, perhaps try to prod the Baltics, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, to see whether we are as committed to um, New York as we are to old Europe. I'm afraid that NATO is dead man walking. Um, when it comes to Afghanistan, look, Afghanistan is going to turn into a vacuum for terrorist states, uh, for terrorist groups. I'm much more worried in the long term, actually, about Pakistan, because every time a country has used radical Islamist jihadism, as a foreign policy tool for export only, Saudi Arabia, Syria, and Turkey. Ultimately, there's been blowback and they've been hit at home. I, I mean, Pakistan may look at Afghanistan as strategic depth. I wouldn't be surprised if at some point the Taliban and these Al-Qaeda and Islamic State groups, which they harbor, are going to start looking at Pakistan as strategic depth. And of course, the danger there is Pakistan has nuclear weapons. So could Pakistan collapse what would that mean? Um, unfortunately, I think we're going to be paying for this mistake that Biden made for generations. My goodness. My goodness. All right, Michael. Uh, thorough and thoughtful and um, so interesting. What, what did, didn't I ask that I should have? What else do the American people need to know? The only thing I would add, Bill, and I'm going to be a little bit of a history nerd here, is an Please. understanding of why Pakistan supports the Taliban. Pakistan, of course formed as an Islamic state with the partition of India in 1947. And while it was meant to be an Islamic state, it was a very diverse country ethnically. You had Punjabis, you had Sindhis, you had Pashtun, you had Baluchis, and in what's now Bangladesh, you had Bengalis. Back before 1971, you had West Pakistan, which is what we know Pakistan as today, and you had East Pakistan, which was Bangladesh, and West Pakistan didn't treat East Pakistan well. They looked down upon the Bengalis and so forth. Long story short, Bangladesh declared independence. The Pakistani military decided, oh my God, 
All these ethnic divisions can pose an existential threat to Pakistan. And so in order to prevent uh, Pakistan from falling apart, we've got to support radical Islam as the glue to hold our country together. If you want to understand why Pakistan and its intelligence service has been consistently supporting the Taliban, it's because they have so little self-confidence as a nation. They really do believe that the ethnic divisions in Pakistan could design, could lead their country to, sh to shatter. And so they aren't going to negotiate away their support for, for the Taliban because they feel that if you have an Afghan nationalist state next to them, that's ultimately going to peel the Pashtun away from Pakistan. It seems all nuts and bolts about all these different groups. Long story short, Pakistan has convinced itself that its existence depends on supporting radical Islam. And so this isn't a problem we can ignore, especially because you had A.Q. Khan, the Pakistani nuclear scientist, spreading nuclear weapons around, especially because you have a generation of people who have been brainwashed, generations of people who have been brainwashed into these madrasas, and especially because we've now seen this um, lack of self-confidence manifest itself in the Taliban victory in Afghanistan. What is the best thing for the American people, listeners to this podcast, best thing to read, to keep up on what's going on in Afghanistan? I'm sure it's not the New York Times or CBS News, but you tell me. Okay. I think the most clear-eyed assessments have been coming from the Foundation for Defense of Democracy's Long War Journal. I would turn okay. to their page. Uh, and I say that as someone who's at a competing think tank. They're doing the best work on this. Um, I would also say, if you really want to get into the history, you probably know Peter Thompson, who under George H.W. Bush was the ambassador-designate. He wrote a book, it's like a thousand pages long, uh, called The Wars of Afghanistan, but his book remains really the canon of everything Afghanistan-related if you really want to get in-depth into uh, the tribal dynamics, into the ideology. Go to Peter Thompson. That's T-O-M-S-E-N. One last question, if you don't mind, because I heard you mention this. I was invoking 1842 British uh, troops, uh, military leave Kabul, and one person comes back, and I think I heard you say that's inaccurate, that well, 1,600 were slaughtered. Well, I put an asterisk over it. The British started withdrawing in December of 1841. Of that 16,000 men column and family, because you had camp followers, only the surgeon made it to Jalalabad. Where I put the asterisk and said it was inaccurate is he wasn't the only survivor because the Afghan forces at the time had seized a couple hundred hostages, and over the next couple years, had ransomed them off, or in the case of some of the women, married them off. And that's why I was drawing, that's where I said the true parallel is today, because Biden, like the British at the time, put himself into a hostage situation, and we're going to be seeing this unfold for years as these hostages are ransomed out, or worse. So nothing cha ever changes in Afghanistan. Unfortunately, things do change. But this is actually a disaster of our own making, and we should never forget it. And this yeah. is where I would go back to Ryan Crocker's interview with you. Michael, this was wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank great you, Bill. It's always you great again. talking with great, you. Great to see you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. All right, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. To search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's Bill Bennett Podcast at gmail.com. 
Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week.